Hey everyone, it is great to be with you tonight. My name is Justin, like Andy said, um, and I'm the city group director here at the summit. Uh, my wife Vanessa and I have actually been a part of the summit since June of 2011, um, which is right about the time that we moved to Denver and got married, so a little over a year and a half ago. Well, tonight, like Andy said as well, we're in week 12 of our series through the book of First Peter called Trial and Triumph. And um, if you haven't picked up it now, there's picked up on it now. There's kind of been a theme, right? This theme of trials or, or suffering. And tonight, uh, we're going to look at a text that isn't any exception at all. We're actually going to look at a text that's talking about suffering, um, specifically the kind that's inflicted by our culture. And most of you probably don't think that suffering from the culture is something that you experience regularly. Um, but my guess would be that most of you probably have. I know I have. Um, and for most of you, it's probably something that you've experienced for most of your life. I'm sure if you think really hard, um, you can think about or remember a time that you experienced this. Maybe it was way back in elementary school. Do you remember when the high tops with the pumps were cool? Maybe, yeah, some, someone did. I do, because I never got them. Um, so maybe, maybe your mom wouldn't get you the pumps with the high tops. And so you went to school with pumpless high tops, and all the kids with the pumps on their high tops made fun of you, okay? Maybe for some of you it was a little bit more recent, like when you were deciding on what you were going to study in college or, or what career you would pursue, and your family and friends thought you were ridiculous and told you that you'd never make it in your chosen profession. Um, maybe it was even as recently as this past week, um, when you were involved in a conversation with some coworkers or maybe some friends, and the topic of religion or, or faith came up, and um, your opinion clearly wasn't in the majority. And so you suffered at the hands of their jokes and their backheaded comments. So we've all experienced this in, in some form or another. I experienced this uh, pretty frequently, actually, um, where I work. And, and the way this looks for me is people typically ask me if coaching CrossFit or personal training is the only thing I do. And, and I know that the easy way out of that conversation is just to say in a real general sense that I have a few other things going on on the side that keep me busy. When the truth is that I actually work part-time at a street, that's, or at a church that's just a few blocks down the street. Now, for some of you, this might look like you in the break room, um, and you know, around the break room is all your co- co-workers getting their coffee, and again, the conversation turns to uh, maybe politics or maybe religion or something that's really controversial. And you know that the easy way out of that conversation is just to keep pouring more and more creamer into your coffee over in the corner, hoping that no one's going to invite you into that conversation, right? When, when in reality, we're called to engage those types of conversations. Maybe some of you, you don't work in corporate America, so you can't relate to coffee in the break room. So maybe it's just taking your kids to the park. Maybe it's uh, just a conversation with a neighbor that you share a fence with. And on Monday morning, they're asking you, like, what bar did you go watch the Broncos game at on Sunday night? And, you know, the easy way out of that conversation is just to say, well, you know, I kind of just needed a quiet evening home with the family, so we didn't really do much. When, really, you were here at Summit um, listening to God's words being preached, so you didn't catch the game. You had to go watch what you recorded later on, right? So, in those moments, we have a decision to make. Like, we know the consequences of speaking truthfully and engaging those types of conversations. But when we decide to engage those conversations, we have to respond to the consequences in some way. We all, we all experience the tension in living in a culture 
that is hostile to God and hostile to Christian values. We've all experienced the hurtful jokes, the backhanded comments. But when that tension turns into persecution, we have, to cho- we have a choice to make. We have to respond in some way. So the question is, how do you respond? How do you respond when the jokes come? How do you respond when you lose a relationship? How do you respond when you're treated unfairly? How do you respond when you're just downright rejected? And fortunately for us, Peter is going to deal with exactly that question in the text that we're looking at tonight because the people that he was writing to experienced this kind of persecution on a daily basis. And it it wasn't because they didn't have the right sandals and it wasn't because they didn't choose the right career path. It was because they were Christians. And they didn't just, like, they faced this persecution because they lived during a time and in a culture when it was particularly difficult to be a Christian. And not just difficult in the sense that it wasn't popular, but difficult in the sense that they could literally lose their lives for following Jesus, and as many of them did. And just like us, they needed to know how to respond to this persecution in a healthy way. And so that's exactly what Peter is going to do for us tonight. He's going to tell us how to respond to this persecution that we all face. And so I'm going to tell you exactly where we're going tonight so you have some hooks to kind of hang some of these ideas on. Peter is going to tell us to respond to this persecution by one, rejoicing, and then by resting. So Peter tells us to rejoice and to rest. Look down at verse 12 with me. The first thing that Peter says in this passage is, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. What, what Peter is saying here is it's not a matter of if persecution comes, it's a matter of when it comes. Like for the Christian, persecution is, is not the exception, it's the norm. It's not a surprise, it's actually guaranteed. And Peter's pretty matter, matter of fact here, right? He just says, when this happens, do what? Rejoice. So if you're like me, that's not exactly what you're hoping to hear, right? Like I would much rather be told to man up or roll my sleeves up, dig in, anything but rejoice. That's like bad news on top of bad news because, first of all, nobody wants to be told that suffering and persecution is inevitable. And nobody wants to be told that the right response to that persecution then is to rejoice. It's, it almost seems somewhat counterintuitive, right? Like, you're not going to find that advice anywhere else, I promise. You know, Oprah might tell you to stay positive. You might find a self-help book telling you to think happy thoughts. But the reality of it is, is that re- or, uh, thinking happy thoughts um, and staying positive, having a positive attitude, those are so far from the kind of rejoicing that Peter is talking about in this passage. So Peter says, when persecution comes, rejoice. And that's a lot easier said than done, right? I get that. How can you rejoice during some of the most painful, awkward, and often just painful moments in your life? Peter's going to tell us that we can rejoice during these moments because we've been given four things, all right? We've been given a confidence, we've been given a promise, we've been given a gift, and we've been given an opportunity, all right? I'm going to say that one more time. We've been given a confidence, we've been given a promise, a gift, and an opportunity. Bless you. So the first reason 
that we can rejoice. It's found right here in verse 13. And Peter says, we can rejoice because we've been given a confidence that we are sharing in Christ's suffering. So in other words, Peter's saying is that because Jesus suffered for us, we can suffer for him. Or in fact, it's even an honor to suffer for him. And there's really no one more qualified to say this than Peter, right? Because he was the guy that asked to be crucified upside down because he didn't think he was worthy to be crucified in the same manner as Jesus. And, you know, that's pretty radical. And the idea that Peter's getting at here is that suffering for Jesus is not meaningless because when we're suffering for Jesus, it testifies to the fact that we actually belong to Jesus. Because if you don't belong to Jesus, you don't ever have to suffer for Jesus. So in this way, suffering unites us to Jesus because it solidifies our identity with him. So in this way, in in sharing Christ's sufferings, we're not suffering alone. We're actually suffering alongside of Christ. Christ's suffering enables our suffering, and his sacrifice enables our sacrifice. So first reason is we've been given this confidence. The second thing that Peter says is also here in verse 13. He says that we've been given a promise, and that promise is that Jesus is going to make all the suffering that we endured in this lifetime worth it. He says, when Christ's glory is revealed, we'll actually be able to rejoice and be glad. Now, this isn't the first time in this passage that Peter has has used this language kind of depicting the fact that we're just temporary exiles, right? He's continually wanting us to fix our gaze on the future, on this eternal reality that Jesus is coming back. And the fact that Jesus is coming back and that he's going to set the record straight, um, that he's going to reward us for all the pain and the sorrow and the suffering that we endured for his name is an incredible reason to rejoice during persecution. Peter actually says that, that when this happens, like when, when his glory is revealed, we're going to actually be able to rejoice and be glad because the hope that we've engineered our whole lives around, the reason that we've done everything that we do is finally going to be fulfilled. It's going to become a reality, and everyone will know it. So all those who made nasty jokes about the way you follow Jesus, your name's going to be cleared. The record is going to be set straight. Jesus is coming back. The third reason... Peter says we can rejoice in persecution is because we've been given a gift. Look down at verse 14 with me. I'm just going to read this one straight from the text here. It's important. Peter says that if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, I know at first glance, this kind of seems like Peter's not really telling us anything we don't already know. He's just telling us that the Holy Spirit and and dwells you. And the Bible definitely teaches that, but that's not what Peter is saying here. Peter's not just saying that the Holy Spirit indwells every believer. Peter is saying that when believers are suffering from persecution, the Holy Spirit is active and present with them in a way that he's not at other times. And this was, this was pretty, actually this is the first time I heard this um, or when I was studying this passage. And so this was a pretty um, profound awakening for me, I guess, because it definitely sheds light on some of the stories you hear about Christians in other countries that have suffered in extremely radical ways and their ability to maintain themselves under 
pretty dire circumstances. And right here, Peter's saying that it's during these times, the Holy Spirit is with you, giving you words to say. He's with you, giving you clear thoughts so that you know what to do. Um, he's with you, giving you strength to endure through that fiery trial. And the same thing goes for us. Even though our trials may not seem quite as extreme as some of these other believers in other parts of the world or throughout history, like the Holy Spirit is especially present and especially active when we are facing persecution in his name or in the name of Jesus. The last thing that Peter says we've been given is an opportunity. We've been given an opportunity to glorify God. That's found in verse uh, 16. What exactly does it mean to glorify God? It means to make much of God. It means to demonstrate to those watching our suffering how big our God is. We're also testifying to the fact that our God is worthy, that he's worth the cost, that he's worth the pain. It's, it's the exact opposite of denying him. It's It's embracing him in the middle of persecution. See, our suffering alone doesn't bring God glory, but our response to our suffering does. God doesn't delight when we suffer, but he uses our suffering to purify our hearts and purify our lives. See, when we rejoice during suffering, we demonstrate what's really going on in our hearts. Rejoicing during persecution is evidence of God's refining fire in our hearts. A pastor named John Piper put it this way. He says, glorifying God means showing by your actions and attitudes that God is glorious to you. When you keep rejoicing in God in the midst of suffering, it shows that God and not other things is the great source of your joy. Let's take a step back here and clarify what exactly Peter is talking about in this passage when he's talking about suffering. Because I think this idea of persecution and suffering still might seem a little bit foreign to many of us. And what Peter had in mind in this passage may be a little bit different than what we experience today. Because persecution and suffering can take many different forms. Um, but, you know, some, some of us have probably, are probably well aware of the persecution of the church that takes place in other countries around the world because we've either read a biography about it, maybe we've read about it in the news, maybe we've seen a movie, but my guess is that most of us are not. Like the fact that even today, somebody was killed because of their decision to follow Jesus probably hasn't crossed our mind. In fact, some estimate that just last year, 105,000 Christians lost their lives because of their commitment to follow Jesus. Let me just kind of put this in perspective. That's 12 every hour or one every five minutes. Like, that's a pretty staggering statistic. 12 every hour, one every five minutes. But the, the thing is, like, we're not just talking about statistics here. We're talking about mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters who are losing their lives on a daily basis because of their commitment to follow Jesus. Um, I brought a picture that uh, might help us wrap our minds around this a little bit more. And in this picture, the Bible that's in this picture was recovered um, from a small church building in Nigeria. And what happened was this, this small church in Nigeria was having a uh, Thursday evening prayer meeting when a group of extreme militants uh, basically just opened fire on their prayer meeting. 
And you, know, you can imagine probably a building quite a bit, or a room quite a bit smaller than this one, maybe packed with about half the number of people that we have in here. And then in the middle of their prayer meeting, automatic weapons open fire on all of them. And in the middle of that, the pastor lost his wife and his 10-year-old son. And eight others were killed and 20 more were injured. This is the kind of suffering and persecution that Peter had in mind in this passage. Like these believers knew the cost of following Jesus because persecution was something that they lived with on a daily basis. And I'm not just showing you this picture or telling you these stories in order to make you feel guilty for the life you live. I'm telling you in order to help give context and add a little bit of weight to Peter's words here. Like, if this is what you're experiencing, and Peter says, rejoice, that takes on a whole new level. So, what does this mean then for those of us that don't experience persecution like this on a daily basis? You know, just because we live in the United States doesn't mean that we don't ever have to suffer for Christ or suffer for being a Christian. Um, Peter said in this passage at the very beginning, right, that, that suffering or, or that the fiery trial, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So, like, I didn't read any exception clause in there for the Americans in the crowd. And so the, we know these words apply to us just in a different way. You know, some of you know what it's like not to get a job promotion because you're a Christian. Some of you know what it's like to be ostracized by a loved one or a family member because you decided to follow Jesus. Others of you, have, you've experienced the loneliness of being the only Christian where you work. You know, these things are hard. It's not easy going to a job where you can't talk about the things that are most important to you. It's not easy being the only Christian around the dinner table at Thanksgiving. It's not easy to deal with the consequences of engaging controversial conversation and and answering questions about your faith and opinions truthfully and honestly. But what should our response in those moments be? Peter says in the first half of this passage that our response is, should be to rejoice. When you don't get the job promotion because you're a Christian, rejoice. When your family wants nothing to do with you because you follow Jesus, rejoice. When your coworkers mock you for going to church, rejoice. See, the expression of our persecution is not nearly extreme as some parts of the world. But it's just as real. It still stings It still costs us, maybe not our lives, but it might cost us our influence, our popularity, maybe our money, maybe our self-esteem. And Peter says when it does, rejoice. Why? Because we've been given four things, right? We've been given a confidence, we've been given a promise, we've been given a gift, and we've been given an opportunity. And more than that, ultimately, the great source of our joy is found in God and not other things. Let's look at the second half of this passage now, verses 17 and 19. I'm going to go ahead and read these so they're fresh. Verse 17, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? 
Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So the second response that Peter tells us to have is to rest. Now, that one's not any more natural than the first one, right? Like, when persecution comes, your natural response is probably not to rest. It might be to run or to fight, but definitely not rest. I know mine's not. Peter's going to give us a reason why we can rest, and he's going to give us a plan that we can rest in. So the first reason, or the reason, sorry, that Peter tells us that we can rest is because God will bring vindication on our behalf. So he uses the word judgment here in verse 17 uh, to describe what is being accomplished through the persecution that his readers were facing. So throughout the Bible and throughout this letter, biblical authors and Peter are continually trying to get us to, to look towards the judgment or, or look towards that day when Christ's glory is revealed, as Peter says earlier in this passage. And the reason that followers of Jesus don't need to be concerned about the judgment but can actually look forward to the judgment is because Jesus was already judged in our place, right? Like, the judgment day is not something to be feared. It's not something that should give us anxiety. It's something that we should look forward to. It's something that we should be excited about because Jesus, sorry, all of the Father's wrath was poured out on Jesus as he hung on that cross. According to the Bible, and according to the gospel, like, our judgment is finished because Jesus declared our judgment was not guilty when he hung on that cross and he conquered death and rose again. So for believers, this is not a warning. This should be an encouragement. Peter is saying in this verse here that there will be an end to the persecution. It's not forever. The end is when Jesus comes back to vindicate you from all the mistreatment, all the suffering, and all the shame that you endured for his name. Everything that it costs you to follow Jesus in this life will be repaid on that day. If you follow Jesus, you don't have to live in fear of the judgment day. You can actually look forward to it because on that day, Christ's glory will be revealed and everyone will know it. He'll return bringing with him vindication for everyone who chose to commit to follow him in this lifetime. In verse 19, we see that uh, Peter gives us a plan that we can rest in. He says that all of our suffering is according to a plan. And not just any plan, it's according to God's plan. And you can rest in God's plan because ultimately, none of the suffering that you endure in this lifetime is outside of his perfect will. So, you know, why should you trust God's will? And Peter says here in this passage, you should trust God's will because he is faithful. At the end of the day, God is in control of the persecution that you and I face, right? Like, like culture cannot say anything or do anything that God doesn't allow because God created culture. He is Lord over the culture. Even his rule extends over the culture. So all of the suffering you, and face, you face at the hands of culture is not outside of God's perfect will. But don't miss what Peter says right after this in verse 19. He says, to trust God while doing good. So this implies that the act of resting in God's will is not passive. So, in other words, we don't just sit back and take the beatings, right? We, 
we take the beatings but continue to do good, which is evidence sorry, which is evidenced by our good conduct. So the evidence that we are truly trusting in a good and faithful creator is that we are continuing to do good in the face of persecution. So there's something that you uh, need to understand about me, and that's that I like to think of myself as, as a man's man, right? So all of you that know my deepest, darkest secrets, this is the time to keep them to yourself. So I drive a Chevy pickup. I listen to country music. I like to hunt. I wear my cowboy boots whenever I can sneak out of the house without my wife seeing me. And there's one thing, though, that can, that can choke me up a bit. And by that, I mean make me cry like a baby. And that's a, a good gut-wrenching story of vindication. And one story that does this to me every time is the story of Rudy. And I know I'm not the only one in the room that Rudy does this to. And um, in case... Well, for those of you that is... Uh, actually, the reason... The reason that Rudy, the story of Rudy uh, does this to me every time is because Rudy vividly illustrates the, the fact or the truth that it only takes one day to validate a lifetime of sacrifice and hardship. Now, that's a, that's a pretty bold statement, right? But those of you that have seen Rudy know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't seen Rudy, that's un-American, so you need to fix that right now. Actually, no, after this is over. Um, so... Rudy was a guy that dreamed of playing for the Notre Dame Fighting Irish football team, right? But the only problem was that Rudy was 5'6", 165 pounds, and had dyslexia. So not exactly the stuff that D1 athletes are made out of, right? So you can imagine all the jokes that Rudy was the butt of. You can imagine um, all the times that he was laughed at during football trades. You can imagine the persecution, the mockery, the scorn that he endured while he pursued his dream of playing for the Notre Dame Fighting Irish. Um, Rudy finally made it on the practice squad where he continued to take beating after beating after beating. There are times when he wondered if all the persecution and the pain that he was suffering um, would actually be worth it. There's times that he wanted to just throw it in and forget about it. There's plenty of people that told him he should just throw it in and forget about it. But one day, or one game I should say, uh, Rudy was sitting on the sidelines as usual, game after game, and the coach looks over at Rudy. And you guys that have seen Rudy, you all remember this moment. So the coach looks over at Rudy and pulls him off the sideline and puts him in the game. So you remember the the shock on Rudy's face. You remember the shock on all of his teammates' face. Then the shock on all the crowd's face. And then the resounding applause as Rudy sprints onto the field, fist-pumping all the way to the huddle, Right? And then the last play, he only played three plays, the last play that he would ever play, Rudy fought through the offensive line and sacked the quarterback. After the game, Rudy's teammates carried him off the field on their shoulders. And in that moment, all the pain, all the mockery, all the suffering suddenly seemed worth it, right? There's no more jokes. No one was laughing anymore. Rudy was a hero. Everyone loved him. It only took one game actually three plays, to validate years of suffering and sacrifice. Now, I want you to kind of keep that picture in your mind as we kind of talk about why this is important for us. What does this mean for you? It could mean one of two things, depending on what group of people that you fit into tonight, all right? So, First, I want to talk to those of you who belong to Jesus. For you, 
the judgment day should create in you a sense of anticipation, right? A sense of anticipation because the gospel is true, and what Christ declared to be true of you, which is that you are not guilty, should create excitement, all right, or anticipation. So the, the good news that you've been declared not guilty frees you from the anxiety of judgment day and is able, enables you to long for the day when Jesus will finally vindicate you, for the day that he comes back and sets the record straight, for the day he comes back and clears your name. Everything that you willingly sacrifice to follow Jesus will be rewarded. All the mistreatment, all the pain, all the abandonment, all the slander, Jesus will make right. You don't have to wonder if this is going to be worth it, because Peter says it will in this passage. Your reputation will be restored, your health will be revitalized, and your losses will be repaid. That's what we have to look forward to. So those of you who have lost loved ones who belong to Jesus will be reunited with them. You husbands and fathers who struggle under the weight of providing for your family, you'll be released of that burden. Those of you that have struggled or, or suffered from physical diseases your entire life, like you'll be healed and given a brand new body. You mothers who have lost a child, like you'll be reunited with them, and you might even be meeting them for the very first time. So the, the longer that we suffer in this life, the greater the anticipation of that day becomes. Now, let me talk to those of you who don't belong to Jesus. Peter's warning here should create in you a sense of awareness. If you've rejected the gospel because of your unbelief, Peter says in this passage, it doesn't end well for you. And what we want for you tonight, what I want for you tonight is to be brought into the family of God. I want you to move from an awareness to a sense of anticipation, to move from having anxiety over the judgment day to being excited for the judgment day. I want you to know that on judgment day, your verdict will be not guilty. If you're trusting in the good things you've done, if you're trusting in the faith of your parents, if you're trusting in anything else besides God's work or Christ's work on the cross, your verdict on that day will be guilty. But it could be not guilty. You can know for sure that it could be not guilty. Not guilty because Jesus was guilty in your place while he hung on that cross. Not guilty because Jesus took on the full wrath of God that we both deserved. Not guilty because you have surrendered your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ and have committed to following him in a culture where virtually nobody else is. You know, Peter promises in this passage that if we're part of the household of God, if, if we're a Christian, that there will be suffering, that there will be persecution in this life. You know, he promises that. He said it was a guarantee at the very beginning. But he also says that it's a whole lot better to suffer in this life for being a Christian than to experience the wrath of God on the judgment day. So our culture bears a striking resemblance of the culture that the church in 1 Peter lived in, right? Like, we, we may not be having people asking us to 
deny our faith on a daily basis, but we certainly don't live in a culture that promotes Christian values or holds those who follow Jesus in high esteem. Peter says it's not a matter of if the persecution comes. He says it's a matter of when the persecution comes. And when it comes, he says to rejoice and to rest, right? Rejoice because we've been given a confidence, a promise, a, a, promise, a gift, and an opportunity. And rest because Jesus is coming back to vindicate you. And because all of the suffering that you endure in this lifetime is according to God's perfect plan. Let me pray for us. Father, we're thankful for this book and especially this passage that speaks volumes to the way that we navigate our culture as followers of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I, I, I pray that we would look at the way we live our lives on a, on a day-in, day-out basis through the lens of this passage and, and ask ourselves, are we rejoicing when these forms of persecution that we face come? Lord, are we, are we resting in the confidence that we're sharing in Christ's suffering? Are we holding on to the promise that you are coming back? Are we claiming the gift that the Holy Spirit is with us, especially in times of persecution, in a way that he isn't at other times? Or are we taking every opportunity to glorify you, to show to those watching us, to those watching our suffering, that you're worth it, that you're worth everything that it's costing, Lord? Lord, I, I pray that we would, we would learn how to rest, rest when these hard times come, Rest because we know that you're coming back and you're going to vindicate us. Lord, that day is going to be amazing. Lord, and rest because we know that our suffering is according to your will. And your will is perfect, Lord. You don't make mistakes and you allow things into our lives for a reason. You're in control of the culture. You're in control of our suffering. And so we can rest. And Lord, I pray that for those of us that belong to you, that have committed to following you, Lord, that we would anticipate the judgment day. Lord, when we're united with you once and for all, when the struggles, when the burdens, when the weight of this life disappears and we have eternity with you to look forward to. God, help us to live for that day. And Lord, for those of, you, those of us in here that, that may not know you, that may not belong to the family, that may not understand what this is all about, God, I pray that that your spirit would move and you would create a sense of longing to know what exactly we're talking about when we speak of the judgment day and guilty and being not guilty, Lord. That there'd be someone here tonight that moved from a place of guilty to not guilty, to know what their verdict will be on that day, Father. We love you. We thank you for what you're doing in this city for the opportunity to be a part of it. We thank for, we're thankful for the power of your word and for the power of your spirit. And I pray all this in Jesus' name.